I'd like to begin this evening's talk with a writing by Denise Levertov, a great poet of our time who's no longer with us. Intricate and untraceable, weaving and interweaving, dark strand with light, designed beyond all spiderly contrivance to link not to entrap, elation, grief, joy, contrition, entwined, shaking, changing, forever forming, transforming. All praise, all praise to the great web. So this talk is about the great web. Each one of us is drawn to practice by various unique reasons. Maybe in particular it's to be free from suffering because we've seen so closely in our lives and so much in our lives dukkha, suffering. Or maybe it is simply to be free. Maybe it is to know peace unconditionally or to know God, whatever that is to us. And within that, there is this common yearning that maybe we're not so aware of in particular or so clearly. This common yearning, which is just as spiritual, to connect with ourselves more deeply. This connecting with ourselves is as spiritual as connecting with God or whatever that is or with peace. And so that beyond the words and thoughts and ideas and concepts of who we think we are, we want to understand more deeply than that. Beyond the words and thoughts and ideas of who we think we are, we want to go beyond this revolving around a sense of self, beyond that prison in a way. And it's because of this common yearning to connect with ourselves more deeply, we enter the realm of the impersonal. We enter the realm beyond the personal, realizing how impersonal all experience is as we do our practice and we open moment to moment to whatever is happening. We realize this understanding of the emptiness of self, we realize in ever-deepening ways what that means with regard to the five aggregates, for example, that we've spoken of in different ways, this combination or collection of all of these transitory states that we make into a sense of self. And when that inner chatter quiets down, even that inner chatter that has to do with the Dharma, reflecting on the Dharma, the truths of our beingness, the deeper truth of suchness, are known to us. And this is from Hafiz, a great Sufi master who lived in the 1300s. When the words stop, 
and you can endure the silence that reveals your heart's pain of emptiness or that great wrenching, that sweet longing. That is a time to try and listen to what the beloved's eyes most want to say. What the beloved's eyes most want to say. So that these basic truths which we come to recognize with every moment-to-moment experience are grot, are known so deeply that whether we're conscious of them mentally or not, somehow the body-mind knows that. And these experiences, ever-deepening experiences of the truths of impermanence or the empty nature of self, etc., have to happen over and over and over and over again with every sense door, with every experience, so that these truths are known beyond a shadow of a doubt. So it is in this common spiritual yearning to connect with ourselves more deeply in the most profound way that it brings about an understanding that just as this is for me, or what we call me, just as this experience moment to moment opens to these ever-deepening truths, this is how it is for all other beings. And so that brings about a connection that's much bigger than ourselves, that isn't revolving just around a sense of self. So it connects us with all other beings and indeed with all other things of this world, with this great web of life. So tonight I'd like to take the time to speak about that particular connection, that connection of opening to the wisdom of how everything is so impersonal, really. And though it's seemingly unintegrated, when that is experienced over and over and over again, it becomes integrated into a much bigger picture. It connects us with everything. And so we experience an integrity of life, a fullness of life, a deep ecology, so to speak which brings about a kind of compassion that is natural. It flows from there like a natural spring flows from the earth, from all the elements of the earth. There's a quote by Sri Nisargadatta that many of us love to say over and over again. It has such uh, ever-deepening meaning. Love tells me I'm everything and wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Between the two, my life flows. And so it's connecting those two understandings. While I was writing this out, just so I 
have an order to everything. I was remembering one of my neighbors back on Maui that he kind of had it backwards, but it had the same meaning to him. And he wrote it, uh, love tells me I'm nothing. Wisdom tells me I'm everything. And I, I wondered why he said it that way. And he said he had just broke up with his girlfriend. So, <laughs> but, but somehow that gave him comfort. And I even, I even, he even wrote it and put it on his refrigerator. So you can say it the other way, and maybe it has some meaning for you, too. <laughs> And so it is with that intimacy of coming really, really close to our moment-to-moment experience with every formation that arises of the body-mind. We not only open to that understanding that it's impersonal, but in a kind of unknowing way, unknowing meaning that we're not quite conscious of it, we open to the understanding that it's also universal. So mostly this this talk has to do with how the impersonal and the universal come together. And I think that this is really important as we go out into the world and we live our lives. So that from a moment-to-moment understanding, it opens into a much bigger picture and we integrate it. In practice, as many of you, all of you know, there come times when the defining lines of even what we call this body become so porous and become so transparent, intangible, thin, dissolving all the time. And so we come to see what we call this body as so unsolid. And so maybe some deep questioning takes place, not in a kind of wordy way, not in an intellectual way, but in a, um, a deeply searching way. What is this, the meaning of this life of being human? And so we begin to understand more deeply by not seeing the body on just this relative level, but we experience it more deeply than that, seeing the intangible, flowing, dissolving, porous process that is taking place, even in what we call body. And so, too, the experiences contained in what we call mind, the pleasant, unpleasant experiences, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, the moods of the mind, all the objects of the mind, also like phantoms, insubstantial. And that saying, that phrase that Joseph has used a lot, empty phenomena rolling on, We come to understand that not through the intellect, but through experience. And that deepens that in us, that wisdom deepens. Even the seeming separation between pleasure and pain dissolves. 
what we call painful experience in the knee, like throbbing, heat, tension, pressure. Even this can be experienced in something enjoyable, something throbbing, vibration, warmth, coolness. There's not much separation between pleasure and pain. So everything becomes so much more porous then. Equanimity ripens, and there is a deep resting, a deep accepting of the quickly changing present moment. It begins to be more and more okay. The equanimity of knowing without words, this is how it is, over and over and over again, this is how it is whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, whatever thoughts there were that horrified us or that seduced us no longer have its um, clinging nature. Countless times in the moment-to-moment practice while sitting, while walking, while eating, or at all of the other times in between during the other activities, There may be, for example, the experience of the breath or any part of the body, the changing uh, sensations that come with that, and just the awareness of them. Maybe there's heat, vibration, coolness, heaviness, lightness, pressure, tension, swaying, jerking, And this is seen in just a kind of bare attention. Maybe with the sound, there arises hearing. And with the hearing, there's just the awareness of it. Just so simple, just like that. And maybe when eating, there is just the tasting and the awareness of it. Just so simple and pure like that. Or smelling and the awareness of it. Or any other experience through any sense door or through the mind. Aversion or metta, jealousy or joy and just the awareness of it. The thought process, not getting lost in the thought but realizing the ever-changing energy pattern of it. Just the awareness of that. So it's just the elemental experience and bare attention to it. We experience the purity of the present moment in this way. No matter what mindfulness connects to, It may connect to a moment of aversion. And then following that is a moment of mindfulness. And the aversion in some way is purified. So when we say bear attention, what does that mean? It means free from any form of greed, hatred, or delusion. Bear attention. There is... um, 
a sutta. It's called the Bahia Sutta. And this is what the Buddha said to one of the persons that approached him and asked for a teaching in short. And the Buddha said, O Bahia, whenever you see a form, let there just be the seeing. Whenever you hear a sound, let there just be the hearing. Whenever you smell an odor, let there just be the smelling. When you taste a flavor, let there just be the tasting. When a thought arises, let it just be a natural phenomena arising in the mind. When you practice like this, there will be no self, no I. When there is no self, there will be no running that way and no coming this way and no stopping anywhere. Self doesn't exist. That is the end of dukkha. That itself is nibbana. So in a moment of mindful awareness, this very powerful moment, there is a freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion. No clinging to any experience, which means no clinging to a sense of I. Therefore, no delusion, no delusion of a sense of self. Our teacher Upandita would call this a mini-enlightenment, actually, during these moments. We may not actually know them or say, oh, that was a moment of purity, because these moments happen so quickly. And we don't remember them so much because they're mostly so empty and pure. They don't have any grit about them. So they're not carried into the next moment. But there are countless of these moments in our practice. And we think we're not doing the practice, but there are many, many moments when this purification process is happening. It's hard to describe how the utter bareness and simplicity of a moment like this can bring so much happiness. When it happens in a great continuity, we feel that joy and happiness. It's not like a bubbling kind of giddy joy, but a very quiet kind of joy. It's like a great burden lifted, like a freedom from a prison when this continuity of mindfulness is happening. Freedom from the prison of self and the importance of that, the all-encompassing kind of ignorant importance of that. And we open to, into an understanding that's much larger that's much bigger, that's much more deserving of our attention, of our energy. This is what Don Juan tells Carlos Castaneda. Most of our energy goes into upholding our importance. If we were capable of losing some of that importance, two extraordinary things would happen. One, we would free our energy from trying to maintain the illusory idea of our grandeur. And two, we would provide ourselves with enough energy to catch a glimpse 
of the actual grandeur of the universe. So it's like somebody told me one time that um, I've lost something which I didn't realize was so small. And what I've gained is something so much bigger than that. So please don't underestimate the power of mindfulness, even when you think it's not happening because you feel the grit of aversion or of impatience or whatever it is, any form of attachment. Every time we bring a moment of mindfulness to that, it's a moment of purification. Those moments are so powerful. We may get frustrated, impatient, waiting or looking for kind of um, experiences that are tangible so that we can prove ourselves to ourselves or to whoever we're speaking to or to reassure ourselves that we're making progress. But those tangible places in the process are just part of the process. It's not a place where we need to give any lasting importance. They, in and of themselves, are arising and passing away. It's in that simple and pure practice of mindful awareness that the real purification, the real progress, so to speak, is taking place. It's not about racking up spiritual experiences. It's about purifying the heart. So that there are many, many times in practice when there are so many ways which we have to figure out as spiritual friend to say, just keep going. You know, so many ways of encouraging, inspiring, tricking, whatever we need to do to just keep you on the cushion and doing the walking practice and whatever tools we can come up with to help you be more mindful. I don't know if I consider myself lucky or um, unfortunate (laughs) that I had mostly Asian teachers, and there weren't so many different ways of inspiring me to just keep on going. Mostly, Upandita would say, please continue. For those of you who know, who have practiced, please continue, you know, or just be mindful. Or if I walked in and he could catch that I was looking at him and looking down at my feet and quick kind of movement of the eyes and not really being present, he would say, mindful, mindful. And uh, there wouldn't be too many words. It would just be that simple way of saying it. And there was one time I went to see him after a long time of not seeing him. And uh, I was so happy to see him as... He's the one person in my life that doesn't care if I like him or not. Uh, He really just cares about freedom. And so he can say anything to me. And I've given him that, in a way, I've had to give him that permission because that's how he is. (laughs) (laughs) 
right? So he was um, coming down these stairs from a place I went to visit him. And I put my hands together. And uh, as he came down, I said, I'm so happy to see you, Venerable Sir Bhante. I'm so happy to see you. And he answered in uh, probably Burmese or I don't know, Pali maybe, probably Burmese. And so I, I just kept going and uh, he just kept going and I had some little crocodile tears coming out of my ears. I didn't want to get too teary because he would say, mindful, mindful again. <laughs> so he came down and we had a short conversation. He understands a little English, but there was still an interpreter there. So the, that time ended, and it was just myself and the interpreter. And uh, this interpreter said, would you like to know what he said when he came down the stairs after you said, I'm so happy to see you? And I kind of hesitated and gulped, <laughs> but I said, yes, okay. And he said, after you said that, he said, I'm not here to make you happy. I'm here to make you mindful. And it's, I understand that. I mean, don't you understand that? Because you can't get your happiness from anyone else. It has to come from your own understanding through mindfulness of what this life and what this body and mind are all about, really. Not the concept of what it's all about, but underneath that concept, underneath all of our ideas, what it's all about. So why is mindfulness so important? When there is no mindful awareness, there is a relationship to that moment of ignorance of aversion, of attachment, of delusion, confusion. And in that relationship, always, there is a sense of I that arises. When there's no mindfulness, there's aversion, attachment, or delusion. It's as simple as that. I'm not just saying this from the text. This is experiential. And so a sense of self is born during these times. A sense of self gets solidified. This is wrong view. It's wrong view because we're not seeing it entirely, deeply, thoroughly. However, in a moment of mindfulness, there is this clear seeing, this potential to see with wisdom. In a moment of mindfulness, there is an absence of greed, of hatred, of delusion. And this is why Upandita would call it a mini-enlightenment. There's an absence of greed, hatred, and delusion, or any of its different aspects. And so when there is a great continuity of mindfulness, there is this experience of that kind of purity, that 
kind of absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. So the experience of non-greed or this mind of generosity, of non-clinging is experience. So then there is this this experience of non-hatred or the experience of metta in all its different forms of sympathetic joy, compassion, equanimity. And there, when there is the absence of delusion, so then there is clarity, this ability to see the moment truly as it is, deeply, with wisdom, seeing the anicca aspect, the dukkha aspect, the anatta aspect. So during this time, it's just a river of changing experience. There's no clinging anywhere, no creation of a sense of self. A relationship of mindfulness to experience is the only way that a sense of self is not created. It's the only way that we don't create a sense of self when mindfulness is there. It's so simple. But with compassion and the continuity of our practice, we painfully begin to see how the habit of mind is to make things so complex to put layer upon layer upon layer of interpretation on everything that is experienced. And so it hides the truth. We get farther and farther away from the truth. So sometimes mindfulness is called uh, awareness without interpretation. It's just experiencing the moment barely, with bare attention. So bit by bit, mindfulness faces everything that makes up this body-mind experience through all the sense stores, all the aggregates. And as T.S. Eliot says, it's a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. So it's like bit by bit, We really need to deepen this experience as it goes through every moment-to-moment experience. That flow, that understanding of that flow can be very scary sometimes when it's just observing with no observer, really. It's just that flow of experience. But as we allow ourselves to enter into that experience over and over again from a place of feeling relatively safe because we're more accustomed to that terrain, there begins to be more stability in our practice through the continuity of it. And we begin to feel more assured. This is how it is. And we're not fighting it anymore we're more and more in alignment with it. There is that book by Pema Chodron, The Wisdom of No Escape. We begin to see we can't escape this truth anymore. And our lives begin to be informed 
by a deeper, by these deeper truths. A friend of mine in Minneapolis wrote me a letter um, not long ago, about a year ago, and she was having a very difficult time with her uh, son who was going through a challenging time growing up, and um, as all young adults do. And so through some in incredible great misunderstanding, he was uh, sent to prison. And he had to do some kind of time and some kind of ways of um, learning how to uh, face his anger and whatever was going on within him. He was very challenged. His family was very challenged. And it was, a, it was an incredible time of rage and terror for her, but there was also some incredible learning for her. She said she was able to relax more because she understood the truth more deeply. And her words were, the impermanence of all things has been very helpful to relax into not because she knew it would just go away sometime, not because she wanted to get rid of it through that understanding of impermanence, but she knows deeply how things arise and pass away. All conditioned things arise and pass away. And as the Buddha says, understanding this deeply brings the greatest happiness, which is peace. And so we come to understand and experience our bodies and the mind in a revolutionary way, in a way we never thought we could experience. And it's like seeing this bundle, this mind and body continuum, so fleeting, appear and disappear, appear and disappear, beyond description. And so the words from the Diamond Sutra may then begin to fit our experience. Thus shall ye, ye think of all this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning, a flickering lamp, a phantom, a dream. It makes more sense then and at the same time, it's a holy experience, experiencing this life in its ultimate reality. It may feel when this fear is gone and we can relax more into that, that understanding and the quickly fleeting, porous experience that we're wearing some kind of gossamer wings through life. In a way, it feels so unveiled. We begin to experience our lives from a fuller place of understanding and see our lives more fully, not from a small place imprisoned by the small sense of self. So some spiritual maturing occurs during our practice when we can begin and we can begin to hold, to embrace, to integrate two understandings 
The first is yes, on an absolute level. There is just this collection, this flow of experiences and the awareness of them. And yet, on this relative level, we must, that we integrate that into, we realize that we do what's appropriate. On this relative level, we see that there is joy and sorrow, praise and blame. And we learn to work with that from a deeper place. I've told this famous story about Manindra many times, but it makes a point. He was someone that uh, has walked, he is someone that walks a spiritual path that I see live out understanding the relative sense of life and the ultimate understanding of life and who holds these two very beautifully in life. There was that time that probably many of you heard of when I had to bring him to the hospital and get an operation. And during the operation, or before the operation, the nurse had asked him if he wanted to have any kind of sedative and um, to have any kind of anesthesia. And I was kind of curious as to what he would say because I thought he might not want to have that. Um, They were going to put a cut in his abdomen and kind of clean some things up that hadn't been done properly in India and then just close it back again with a kind of butterfly bandage that didn't need to be sewn up again. And so the people that were helping him, that did this, um, the hospital and the doctor and everybody were offering this all on mostly Donna, a Donna basis, knew he was uh, a great being in his own way. And so they, they asked him if he wanted this. And he said yes. He was quite curious. He, he wanted, many of you know Menindra to be, he's, He's just such a curious person. He likes to know everything that's going on. And so they were, the nurse gave him the, uh, the sedative vo- volume, I think it is. And so they gave him uh, this, and then they were asking him. And I was by his side. He still hadn't gone into the operating room, asking him, what's happening now, Mr. Manindra? And... Uh, He gave them a report as if he were reporting to a teacher, you know. Oh, he said, oh, very pleasant. Uh, Vedana, very pleasant, lightness, floating, tingling, vibration. Oh, very good, very nice. (laughs) He wanted to really know this experience. What What happens when people take this kind of thing? And so when he was ready... They said, uh, are you ready now for this intravenous, you know, this uh, uh, other thing that they needed to give him to kind of knock him out? And so uh, he stayed with it quite long before he got knocked out, by the way. So they were asking him then, okay, now start counting from either 10 or 100 backwards and let us know how you're feeling. So same thing. He said, 10, oh, lightness, oh, oh, this is like the Deva realms. (laughs) He mentioned about how this is so 
beautiful and so on. He said, oh, very nice and floating experience now. And so he went through the whole, all of that. And when it was done, he, he went in the operating room and they did that, whatever they did. And he came out and waited a few hours. So then I took him into the car and uh, they gave me the prescription and they told me now to go to lungs and get the antibiotics and these certain butterfly uh, bandages. And lungs is a drugstore um, that has everything in it that Manindra loves to go into because he's curious. He loves to see everything. And so, uh, and he loves to shop too. So, um, so I thought, in other times when I've gone, had needed to go to Long's, I have to think many times if I can take him with me because he takes such a long time in Long's. That's why they call it Long's. <laughs> and <laughs> I can't always take him with me because I have only an hour or only a half an hour, and he needs a lot of time to read all the labels and ask me all the questions and why do people use this, you know, tanning lotion or whatever it is? <laughs> so <laughs> I thought, well, he had this operation, and I think he'll be okay. And actually, he was laying down in his seat. I put the seat down, and I thought, he's definitely going to be kind of out of it. So I drive up to Long's, and there's just the both of us, and I'm going to go in very quickly and come out again. That's my idea, intention. So I say, um, Muniji, I'm going to get your prescription and your, your uh, supplies. And he said, mm, okay, okay. And um, then he said, where are we? <laughs> and I said, and he was back down like this. And I said, mm, Longs. <laughs> and, and from way back there, he comes up with this incision, you know, in his belly. He comes up straight and he says, shopping? <laughs> like, <laughs> so that's holding the relative and the <laughs> ultimate. <laughs> So as we mature in our practice, you know, we, we understand that, okay, we live in that relative realm and we do what's appropriate. And we also know from an ultimate level, we also know more deeply what's going on. We're not confused by appearances. And we begin to experience who we are more in a spiritually ecological way, what deep ecologists call ecocentrically rather than egocentrically. So we begin to experience who we are in a way that's connected to all of life, much stronger, much safer, much larger, not experiencing not revolving around that egocentric, everything revolves around me, mine, or I. 
So we see this at the earth element. In the earth element, we see this. When we experience deeply on an elemental level, we experience the kind of elements of the body-mind and how that is so connected with all of life. So when there arises the experience, for example, of the earth element, which is the experience of hardness, softness, contraction, expansion, this is the earth element in the body. This is what connects us to all other beings, to all other bodies, and to the earth itself. Everything inside of ourselves connects to everything outside of ourselves and everything inside of everybody else. When there is heat and the varying degrees of it, the hot, the warm, and the cool, this is the fire element. We feel this in the body, in the mind. This is what connects us to all other beings also and to the fire element of nature, the volcanoes, the forest fires, the fiery nature of anger. It was once when I felt this fiery nature of anger inside this mind, my own, what we call my mind, to be appropriate, Uh, and I was really struggling with someone else's anger, someone else's anger who had hurt someone in my family. And when there was this fire and this anger inside my own heart, and all of a sudden I opened to the realization that this anger in my own heart is no different from the anger of that person. And there was a dissolving of the barrier that separated us and a way for compassion to come through in a completely different way, a way that I'd never expected. So the fire element in the body and in the mind. And then there is the swaying, the jerking, the vibration, the stiffness that comes in experience. This is the air element, all beings, and the atmosphere, the winds, the great winds. This is the air element, inside and outside. This deeply connects us. The water element, it binds everything together, really. It has the nature to cohere, to coalesce. It is said in the text that you really don't experience water element so directly. It's the cohering element. But outwardly, we do experience it. There's a tear from the eyes. And maybe we know it to be water, but we experience it as warmth, sometimes as pressure, as tingling. All the other elements are contained in the water element. 
But we see this just from a tear from our eyes. That is that tear which we taste as salty, any different from the waters of all the seas. Is that tear any different from the woman in the Bronx whose daughter hasn't come home in time and she wonders where she is? Or from the woman in Uganda that feels insecure about her relationship? Is it really that different? So outwardly and inwardly, these experiences, these deep understandings when there is really no sense of self, it's just the heat or coolness, the tingling, the tickling, the vibration, the pressure, the tightness, the heaviness, the lightness, the softness, the hardness, all of these experiences that have no overlaying concept of a sense of self, when that isn't there to separate us, we're so deeply connected to everyone, to everything. And from our experience of this empty nature of it all, really, we see that it's just empty phenomena Two rolling along, the hardness, the softness, it's dissolving. And yet, that experience connects us in a fuller way to everything. And so we understand that beautiful, those beautiful words from Kalu Rinpoche, We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When you understand this, you see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. And so we touch the feeling the inviolable safety of this great web of life through this deepening understanding of no self, no separate self. And it's much fuller, and it's without confusion, and there's much more wisdom connected to it. And from that wisdom, a very natural compassion flows. And we can live our lives in this way, with the balance of compassion and wisdom. And one nourishes the other and informs the other. So I'd like to end with this from Black Elk, from the Oglala Sioux Nation. Then I was standing on the highest mountain of them all, and round about beneath me was the whole hoop of the world. And while I stood there, I saw more than I can tell, and I understood more than I saw. For I was seeing in a sacred manner 
the shapes of all things in the spirit and the shape of all shapes as they must live together like one being. And I saw the sacred hoop of my people was one of the many hoops that made one circle wide as daylight and as starlight. And I saw that it was holy. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.